Hello and welcome to the next episode of the This and One More podcast by Simple Sessions with me, James Lee. In this episode, I am joined by Ben Cormack, a sports therapist who runs both a mentorship for current practitioners as well as having been patient-facing for many, many years. This will be a really interesting episode where we discuss pain, movement and much more in that area. So if you've had an injury in the past or if you are a coach or a practitioner listening and you'd like to know more, um, I'll leave links to Ben's page at the end of the podcast so you can go and find out a bit more about him. But I hope you enjoy this podcast and our discussion on with the podcast. Hi everyone, um, today I'm really pleased to have on the podcast Ben Cormack who's a sports therapist. Um, I'm just going to hand over to him to talk a bit more about what he does, what he, how he kind of came to be where he is now. Over to you. Thank you James, thanks for having me on. Yeah, this is the bit where I have to delve back in into my my shady kind of hazy brain where I have to remember who I am, where I've been and what I've done. Um, so yeah, so first look, thanks, thanks for having me on. Um, what do I do? Well, firstly, I, um, you know, my background is sports therapy, which is kind of musculoskeletal assessment, rehab, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, at the moment, uh, the majority of my work is split between two things. One is a company I run called Core Kinetic, Core Kinetic is an education company um, that focuses on looking at movement, rehabilitation, pain, uh, through what we'd probably call a, mu- a modern musculoskeletal lens. So, you know, often there's so much, you know, crap out there that's telling you various different loads of rubbish. The whole point of Core Kinetic was to bring, you know, good evidence-based, science-based um, kind of rehabilitation information hopefully with a a kind of an evidence-based and positive edge to it um the other thing that i do is uh, run a company called the better clinician project alongside adam meekins who most people probably have been pissed off by adam at some point in their lives uh, um, and we uh, and the better clinician project is kind of um again an accessible online platform that um you know, is driven by a desire to, to bring modern evidence-based information to the masses at low cost. And our kind of real aim with that is to make sure that things are fun, things are entertaining, and that, you know, we don't do things in a really, really boring way because kind of sometimes science and evidence uh, can be either stuffy or it can be a little bit more entertaining and, and keep people um, kind of, you know, more engaged. Uh, what else do I do? So I'm still involved with things like, um, you know, uh, treating patients, uh, both little bits and pieces um, in terms of online and also face to face, although that obviously that's changing uh, at the moment. Um, yeah, and, and I'm probably just messing around, um, arguing with people on social media and stuff like that every now and again. Excellent. Yeah, I think um, a few points there really resonate, especially about kind of the evidence based and, and there being so much rubbish information out there. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I see it all the time from both a, a coaching and a nutrition point of view. Um, and I imagine you, know, you see it all the time from yours, your side of things as well. Um, what I'd really like to sort of talk about today is, is a lot about kind of more about the sort of non-specific joint pains um, and your take on that. So especially things like, like you know, non-specific lower back pain. People get quite a lot of shoulders, hips that I see. Um, and personally, I've found that generally by paying more attention to increasing movement as a whole, um, and then alongside like mobility and strength, obviously appropriately applied to individuals, is, is often hugely beneficial versus the old school, are oh, you injured, don't move kind of theory. 
Um, and, and I know the research that I've seen certainly so seems to support that. And what is your kind of take on that? And how do you approach things like that? Yeah, the world of the non... I mean, things have been non-specific for a long time. If you look at a lot of diagnoses, uh, they are non-specific by definition. So what I mean by that, if you have something like patellofemoral pain, really that's a non-specific knee pain because it's a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning that you kind of rule everything else out and you're left with signs and symptoms that are probably going to lead you more towards uh, a less specific diagnosis, although we do like to give the more specific fancy terminology. Yeah. Um, you know, again, things like subacromial pain. Really, these are anatomical descriptors, aren't they? They're, you know, you're describing a location, not really describing a specific pathology, if that makes sense. Yeah. Again, lower back pain. You know, uh, how many times have you heard someone say about a lower back pain? Oh, it's probably a slip disc. And actually, yeah. slip discs, are, are, you know, or, or disc herniations, I've seen the prevalence discussed as low as about 3% of back pain. You know, so, yeah. you know... Um, that we have lots and lots of non-specific pains. Now, what non-specific means is we don't know. It's not that we don't know. It's not that we haven't got a list of ideas of what it could be. It means clinically we are very poor at being able to identify exactly. So let's take non-specific lower back pain. Non-specific lower back pain could be muscular pain. It could be ligamental. It could be tenderness. It could be discogenic. It could be all of these things. Um, but clinically, we're a bit rubbish at really identifying exactly what these things are. So I think the first thing about non-specific is really always important to point out, you don't just label something non-specific. Non-specific means a process of exclusion. So you've okay. been through uh, a good history, you've been through a good examination, you know, you've done objective and subjective, whatever you want to call it, um, and you've come to a conclusion that you've ruled out serious pathology or, or you remain vigilant to serious pathology, you have kind of minimized the risk that there's going to be something ridiculous, radiculopathy, you know, uh, stenotic, neurogenic claudication, et cetera. And you've got to this point whereby it's probably musculoskeletal. You can't say exactly what, uh, and we're going to call it this really crappy term that means nothing to anyone non-specific, yeah. right? which doesn't mean it's all in your head. It doesn't mean we have no idea. It just means that we, I cannot tell you specifically exactly what it is from a single kind of structure. You know, we know that pain is multifactorial, yeah. et cetera. And that kind of brings us to the next point, which is, you know, do they, you know, you've found that kind of a general non-specific program can often have a good effect on things that we label non-specific. Uh, you know, I, I think that's part of our modern rehabilitative process often is that, you know, in fact, I, I'm going to say, I think the biggest thing that we often do with these people or patients, if they're, if they're more involved in my end of things, is, is what we're doing often is, A, we're moving things. Moving things often helps, right? Uh, you know, whether that's flexibility, mobility, I've never worked out what the difference is between the two, but I'm sure someone can tell you, you know, whether it's strength, whether it's variation and variability, all of the, co the common denominator you have there is moving, you know, and so, you know, we may research things and people might argue about the size of the effect and what have you. I am definitely in the camp that movement helps people, right? So, you know, we, we know that 
movement can be a really, really positive thing, especially for people that don't move that much. So taking someone who's sedentary, taking someone who's, you know, in poor health and getting them moving through a basic exercise program that focuses on, you know, bits of moving into different ranges, you know, using our strength or, or, or whatever other kind of physical biomotor thing that you're looking for really can have a real positive effect. But I'm going to flip it a little bit because I don't think that's the key ingredient. I think the key ingredient actually is we often take people that are a little bit worried, a little bit scared, a little bit apprehensive at using their bodies and we build their confidence at doing so. So one of the biggest things I think is that we don't consider, and I think, you know, we look at exercise and movement as a very, very physical thing. So we talk about strength training. We talk about, you know, various other aspects of training. Um, but I think the really biggest thing that we do often with people that have pain and people that have low confidence is we take them and we restore some element of confidence in using their body. And I don't think we should ever understate how powerful that is. And I'm sure every trainer, every physio, every sports therapist out there has done a really, really great job of taking someone who has stopped moving because of their painful problem. They don't want to move because it's painful. They're worried about doing more damage. They're worried about all of these different things. And we have been able to increase their confidence, restore a little bit of, you know, self-belief back in them about moving and about using their body. And that has a huge impact on their quality of life. Yeah, I think that's a massive point, actually. That was going to be what I was going to ask you next. Um, because, you know, I definitely see, I think you just naturally encourage people to use their bodies more day to day as well then, rather than just specifically when you're being co when you're coaching them, which I think is probably the what has a massive impact long term is if you if you're confident moving in in the setting and you're then confident moving outside of that setting yeah i mean i suppose it can work it could work two ways couldn't it i think sometimes we will get people and there will be this overflow effect where they will move on and they will take this you know newfound confidence this newfound ability and they will start to integrate that into doing different things but there is this other dark side of exercise, actually, where I think sometimes we make people so reliant on us and we make people feel like they can only do these specific exercises in specific ways. And I actually think we can, we can go the other way with it as well. So yeah. I always think that we should be, you know, our aim, our outcome should be not what happens. So forget what happens with a, with a client or a patient within the gym. Almost that's redundant. Because yeah. the point is, if that doesn't increase someone's confidence to go outside and improve what they're doing, then we could say it's not that big a point. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? So actually, yeah. should that be our fundamental aim to actually say, well, what happens in the gym here is a facilitator for what happens in life? Yeah, I think that's, that's a hugely important point, actually. Um, because I think there's, there's not a lot of point, like you say, coaching someone to be led by the hand all the time. I think it's actually kind of quite disempowering in a sense rather than actually teaching them the processes they can then use outside, like you said. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think that's literally the definition of disempowerment, isn't it? You know, yeah. and I think that's what happens. That's what I don't like to see in the world of therapy is that now we're kind of bringing S&C and things like that to the forefront, which is great, but it's the focus on form and the focus on technique and the focus on load. 
And sometimes I think that can be counterproductive sometimes because what actually happens is people aren't always empowered. You know, there isn't an automatic empowerment. In fact, sometimes it could work the opposite way and that we're getting into all these really technical aspects that, that actually take people in the opposite direction. So, so I, I think fundamentally we have to ask ourselves why we are doing something. And for me, the reason I engage in rehabilitation with people and exercise with people isn't to get them fitter, isn't to get them stronger. It's to make sure that they can do the things in their life that they want to do. And one doesn't always equal the other. There's not an automatic flow from one to the other. We know that from ACL research, that you can be very strong and very fit, but it doesn't translate into confidence about going back out on the pitch. Do you find that that kind of links into more injury or more re-injury in that instance and, and the confidence is a big part of that, would you say? Well, look, I, I think that re-injury is a really, really complex subject. And I think it involves many things that we don't understand and, 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 and aspects of, of, of a complexity model that are, for want of a better expression, complex, right? Yeah. So, but I mean, I think that getting people to, in, I, think, I think it's more about engagement than it is about re-injury. I, th I think engagement is, is probably where I'd go more with that. Could that have an effect on re-injury? Potentially. Um, but again, I wouldn't like to suggest that re-injury is about one thing. Although yeah. confidence really probably leads us to engage more. And the more we engage, are we likely to adapt and become robust? And you would hope that that would have an effect on things like re-injury rate. But we know that people can get very, very robust, very, very confident and still get injured. So, so yeah. I, the world of, of injury and injury risk is one that just is almost mind-blowingly complex, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's multifactorial, isn't it? Yeah, always, always. Yeah, and um, I guess that kind of crosses over into in the next thing I was going to ask you then, which is then, um, yeah, at the moment, there's a, there seems to be a big upsurge in like the corrective exercise and you know, dysfunctional movement. And I think, um, yeah, I guess the question is, when do we need to adjust and correct? And then obviously, when is it best to kind of not really worry about it and, and let that kind of take its flow? Because, you know, you see kind of, it's not a perfect movement pattern, but actually, is it problematic is, is kind of one, one question to ask, I think. Yeah, I mean, firstly, I don't know if there's particularly an upsurge. I've been doing this for about 20 years. And I would say that, you know, it's, it's not surging anywhere. It's always been, and it's still pretty big, right? Maybe I've just noticed so, it more than Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So the whole, you know, the whole corrective exercise concept, you know, when you look at the kind of guys that originally came out with these things was, was way back in the 90s, you know. So, in fact, you could say that we have a better counter movement now because at one point it was only corrective exercise. That's all there was. You know, so, um, so, so that, 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 you know, it's interesting to see kind of the evolution of these things. Yeah. But it, it, you know, look, one of the great things about evidence-based medicine or, you know, evidence-based whatever is that we have evidence. So we can go back and we can say, what is the basis of this idea? You know, if you think about corrective exercise, we have things like the upper cross and the lower cross stuff from Yanda that came out in the 70s, right? So this yeah. is 70s. Or even before that, you know, uh, Yander might have even been back in the 50s and 60s, you know. So, but we see this idea of these kind of, you know, long and weak muscles and short and tight muscles. And the idea we stretch some and strengthen the others and correct these aspects of anterior pelvic tilt or, you know, or, or forward shoulder posture or forward head posture. 
or any of these other things. But we also have to ask ourselves, where what is the data that backs up these clinical concepts, right? Yeah. So these are clinical concepts. Um, you know, what backs up the, these things? Is there reliable data that has highlighted these variations or these, you know, adaptations as a pathological thing? So that's the whole point of having evidence-based medicine. We were able to say, well, it's not just this guy's opinion or this guy's opinion or this guy's opinion. We actually have some, some, some data and some research that backs this up. Now, you know, so we could have all of these different concepts, you know, um, let's take something like glute firing. Right. So the idea that we want to get the glutes firing and, uh, and what have you. So, again, that's a kind of a, a yander concept where, uh, you know, this bit fires before this bit fires before that bit. And you overuse the lower back and your lower back falls out and then you die. And I think it gets all very <laughs> problematic. I'm being extreme. I'm only joking. Yeah. I'm only joking. But, you know, these things aren't that actually that difficult to test. So they've done these tests back in the 80s and 90s where they got fine wire electrode. You stick electrodes into different muscles, so the erector spinae, into the hamstrings, into the glutes, etc. And you look to see how they fire. You know, you look to see what's the onset. And this is the, the background of Hodges' original work, looking into the TVA. This is the mid-90s when you had Hodges and Richardson and all these guys from Australia. So going back to the kind of yander stuff, you know, the idea is there are these set patterns of dysfunction that lead to these further problems down the line. But when you actually look at them and actually test them, they find they, there's two, a few, a couple of pieces of research that I, I can think of now. There was one where they did fine wire electrode stuff uh, and found that every time you raise, the classic test is straight leg raise and you get yeah. some dude sticking his fingers into someone else's butt and saying, it's not firing, oh my God. Um, and so it's a pretty easy test really to do. So they stick the electrodes in and what they actually found was if you lift your leg 10 times, you get a different muscle firing 10 times. Yeah. So there isn't this, and this is within one person. This isn't inter-reliability, this is intra-reliability. So then you could turn around and say, well, let's compare that to not participant A, let's compare that to participant B. And then what you find is that participant B does it in a completely different way to participant A. So participant A is doing it different each time, and he's doing it differently each time to participant B is doing it differently each time. Yeah. Right? So what we don't have is these consistent patterns, right? Um, the same with the, uh, with the anterior pelvic tilt. So the idea that you and your pelvis tilts anteriorly, your lumbar spine creates a hyperlordotic position, et cetera, et cetera. And actually what they found uh, in a study, the Haynau study, I think 1990, as I remember, is they found that a certain change in uh, pelvic position didn't create an exact correlation in lumbar position. Yep. So that they're not, is simply mechanically linked as we thought that they were. So we have a lot of these very, very mechanical theories, cause and reactive theories. Again, we could talk about the roots and the weeds and, you know, all these people are talking about foot function, creating tibial rotation and all these other criteria. But we don't see these predictable relationships that you see on Facebook or on Insta slides yeah. or whatever else those relationships don't tend to appear in human complexity 
these simple yeah. relationships. So where we have a confounder is, is uh, let's say I'm, I'm your client, James, and you come along and say, Ben, oh, your bum sticks out. You're, you've got a terrible anterior pelvic tilt. That's exactly why your back hurts. And I'll say, James, you're a very smart guy. No one has ever told me that. Let's try some exercises or let's try some stretches. Well, the point here is that suddenly you've given me some movement in my lower back and you've given me some exercise yeah. and that can really help me. But our post hoc reasoning says my theory was X. The answer is Y. It creates outcome Z. So therefore my theory is correct. So it's what yeah. we call post hoc reasoning. And essentially this is the big confounder is that we give people some exercises. We give them some stretches. They feel better and we use it to validate our theories. But when we actually look at the data and the evidence, we probably don't see the kind of patterns, you know, within within research, objective research that or, or semi-objective research that we see with these kind of more clinical theories. Does that make some sense? I hope. Yeah. It so I guess it's sort of we we kind of we we apply our theory to the fact that actually movement has just made a difference and a positive impact, but we're not quite sure why really, and we just sort of validated that with our own. Yeah, because that's what we do, don't we? Because, you know, the, our client has said, God, James, you, you're really good, mate. You've done a really good... My lower back feels so much better. And you, you've thought, well, I knew the theory. Don't you worry about me. I've got this. Um, and, you know, and, and that's kind of a natural human thing, isn't it? But for, for me now, kind of, it, I get good results with patients and I get bad results. You know, I'm just kind of pretty average down the middle. And, so you know, when you don't get good results it's not always because you did something wrong. And when you get good results, it's not always because you did something bad. Again, it's too complex. There are too many variables, right? And we get locked in this, we get locked in, in validating our own theories. Yeah, I think, I think the hardest thing is almost to take a step back and, and accept that it's a bit of trial and error to a degree based off you know, either your personal experience and or what you've read. Um, and then you're, you're applying something to an individual, which is not the individuals that were researched, for example. So you might get a completely different outcome, like you say, because it's so complex. And um, you're just sort of making a best, a best guess safe approach for that person at that time. Well, I mean, that is evidence-based medicine, James. Yeah. It's a best guess based on this person in front of you, based on the research that we have available. And, and what you are, you are doing an informed guess or you know an informed opinion about what you think is going to be positive for them that is yeah. evidence-based medicine there is no other ev evidence-based medicine is not a game of certainties it's a game of probabilities and this is but this is reflected in research methods so a confidence interval tells me that there is huge variability because of sampling so i cannot sample the entire population i can only sample a slice of the population yeah right so to give a population level answer there's going to be a bit of a guess that's why we have a confidence interval around the mean number to tell us there is probably a big guess a big margin of error here and you know that's what people don't understand about evidence-based medicine is that variability is actually built into the process yeah i think i think that's just a really important sort of point to make quite clear really because a lot of people certainly seem to think that everything is, is a lot more certain than it actually is when it comes to like medicine or, or even this or, or coaching oh, or whatever. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of assumptions like, Coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. Case in point. I'm not, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but yeah. yeah, case in point, you know, the scientific method, I suppose you call it is, is often like not clear in people's heads. They don't understand how it, like, it progressive. 
it's almost yeah. like what we do now is, is what we should always do and if that's right or wrong rather than it's subject to to change every person is a bit of an experiment yeah yeah so i think that's just quite an important thing to sort of realize both from a coaching point of view and from a kind of a client point of view as well so just to answer your question when do we need to worry about it right because it's probably good yeah. to and the answer is you know probably the first place we need to start is is there something that tells us that we should worry because if there isn't something solid to tell us that we should worry about it and when i say that i don't mean some dude from the internet um when there is something there that's solid and tells me to worry about it then i worry about it so an example would be quad strength after acl repair we have some good data that the better your quad strength the less likely to re-injure right so there is some yeah. data there so for me is that corrective well i suppose you are correcting to some degree or correcting capacity so that for me is something with reasonable data yeah and um, just moving on so again it kind of all, all kind of links through from what we've sort of been talking about but there's again the whole kind of posture bad posture crowd as well um, and there's a lot of things people sort of thought about bad posture leading to pain and i guess it kind of comes through the same the same vein of there's possibly a lot of correlation between you know i've got bad shoulders and my neck hurts versus actually is it just because you can't move well enough to to control your joint position and stuff like that and um, and i think that's that's definitely something that i get a lot of people coming to me for is saying oh you know i've got bad posture i want them to improve this yeah that's why i've been told by xyz you know, I've got pain. And again, I guess, is there a causal link there? Or is that again, something that's kind of anecdotally thrown around um, more than is, is, is it should be really? So I think there's two ways to look at it. One is population level and one is individual level. So population level, there is very kind of, you know, we have to think about this from, from two perspectives. So when you are looking at evidence and research, you would like good quality, well done research. What some people don't understand is that you can have a research paper that the methods are poor, the intention is not pure, that means that you know they're setting out to show that this is a problem and this is, this is the effect. Um, so you know we are looking for high quality, well done studies um, that are going to give us a better reflection of what's actually going on. Um, and when you narrow it down to those type of studies, we don't tend to see a huge link between posture and pain. Again, you will have someone else come along and say, Ben, you haven't looked at this study, you haven't looked at that study, and we'll throw a research paper at you. Um, you know, and it, you, you, there will be some things out there that might point us in that direction. And if you want to do a PubMed search, then you can probably find whatever you want. Are they well done studies, though, with, you know, that, that are measuring things in the right way and, and these kind of things? So from my perspective, I, I think that when we look at the overall research base, that the link between posture and pain is not huge. And one of the big issues here is that actually when you look at posture and research around posture, you find that your postures change throughout the day you are moving in and out of different postures, you are doing different things, uh, the way you measure it can change. Um, so there's so many different aspects here that almost what do people even mean by the word posture? Do you see what I mean? That there's actually a lot of complexity here. Um, so 
the, the one big study that I found very interesting was one by a guy called Jeremy Lewis in, in, in the 2000s. He did what's called a case controlled study. So you take a bunch of cases and you take a bunch of controls. In his study, they took a bunch of people with uh, shoulder pain and a bunch of people without shoulder pain. So the shoulder pain is the cases and the shoulder without shoulder pain is what we would call the controls. Now, what you are then gonna do is measure a bunch of variables and see if these variables are more correlated with one group or the other group, right? So if we found that pain was more correlated, if the, the cases were more correlated with the group that had shoulder pain, we might say those variables are important. So the variables Jeremy Lewis looked at were forward head posture, forward shoulder posture, and then I, he looked at another one as well. Oh, thoracic kyphosis. Yep. And he found no difference in the variables of the forward shoulder posture, head posture, and thoracic kyphosis. No difference really in the variables between the two groups. So people with shoulder pain didn't exhibit a worse posture. In fact, people with shoulder pain, or people without shoulder pain, sorry, exhibited slightly worse forward shoulder posture. Interesting. So actually, yeah. maybe less forward shoulder posture predisposes you to shoulder pain. <laughs> but that might be a simple... <laughs> Do you see what I mean? But yeah. that's actually what they found in that study. So it's a good way... To, it's a, what The problem with, I suppose, these studies are they are not interventional. So they're what's called observational studies. So what yes. you're doing at case control studies are observational. So you aren't intervening in, in any... In any any way so you're not controlling for confounders etc um so that means that you know maybe those findings are you know some people might suggest you know we can't imply any element of causation etc which would be fair but i still don't think we have the evidence to back up some of the simple theories that get thrown around when it comes to posture now does that mean that an individual how that might be affecting an individual at a point in time do you see what i mean so we can't yeah. always say that no one ever is going to be affected by an element of poor posture but at a population level the probability is there doesn't seem to be quite the link that's suggested in some circles interesting i think that's um again it's, it's one of those things that's always going to be up for debate isn't it it's quite hard to prove either way you know again like you said it's so individual um as to what you get and um, i think well, when it comes to, I suppose, the, you know, all of the, the quick fixes you can buy, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen them, the kind of like back supports that you can mm. put on and wear like a you know, shoulder thing to keep everything back. And again, people tend to obviously buy them because they're still being sold. Um, any, anything at all there to suggest benefit? Look, I mean, you know, I think you'd have to do, you would have to do some kind of randomized control trial on these devices to be able to actually say with any certainty that these things are beneficial, you know? So I'm sure there yeah. are people out there um, who have put on one of these harnesses and it reminds me, I can't remember, the film Meet the Fockers. Have you seen Meet the Fockers? I have, yeah. Where he has the, the, like the booby suit that he yeah. feeds them with the one boob that he feeds the baby yeah, yeah. with. That's like one of those things. <laughs> so, look, at the end of the day, we have what's called non-specific effects, meaning that sometimes anything can cause someone to feel better. Do you see what I mean? The non-specific effect is, you know, does someone believe in the product? You know, do they believe in... Yeah, do they believe in the concept? 
So lots of things can affect people, but maybe not for the reason that we think, right? So again, it's a confounder, isn't it? That's the point. Yeah. That's the point of doing a randomized control trial is because to some degree, I mean, you cannot control for non-specific effects. It's just impossible. But you can try and minimize them to look at the, you know, the actual efficacy of the intervention. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, I think a lot of these things can make people feel better for reasons that aren't valid in terms of the mechanism of effect. So we are yeah. not, you know, it's not because they improve your posture. It's not because of whatever they think they do. Um, they have an effect for another reason. And I'm sure that goes across lots and lots of different things. Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Obviously, like if, even, even looking into medicine, obviously we know that the placebo effect is, is quite significant in some, in some cases. And that's just almost, you know, a, a mental thing, isn't it? But you yeah, think it's I mean, work. even so beyond some, even beyond the placebo effect, uh, you, you just have basic natural history where things wax and wane. You know, like back pain. If, yeah. We know that, that if you do a study on back pain, there's the art, uh, the Magid Artist paper, whereby he looked at about a hundred different randomised control trials. Back pain, the natural history of back pain is very similar regardless of what you do. So if you give me my booby suit, day three of my back pain, the only thing my back pain generally is going to do often is get better. Yeah. You know, because that, that's what problems do. They get better and then sometimes they flare up and get worse again down the line. Um, the trajectory of, of pain is something that, that's, that's important that we understand. And, you know, natural history probably accounts for a lot of placebo effects even. But there are things out there that change how people feel that we don't know how they work. We don't know why, but they're probably not for the simple mechanical reason that we're told. Yeah. So I guess overall from the, from the sort of structure of what we've been discussing with regards to like pain and movement and, and, and that sort of thing, movement is, would it be fair to say that, you know, from what you, you, you know, or you've read movement is generally a, a big positive in most cases, or do you find some, some cases where any movement at all just makes it worse long-term? You know, look, from, from, from an interventional standpoint, I am a fan of moving over other things. Now, I think it's positive for confidence. I think it's positive for function. I think it's positive for, uh, you know, health. All of these things are positives. Does that mean that everyone who moves is suddenly going to have a profound effect on their pain? No, because that would be ridiculous to suggest. Because pain is complex. You know, it has multiple things that can influence it across a biopsychosocial spectrum. Um, and we still don't fully understand it. So it would be nonsensical to think that uh, just a simple intervention, even one, you know, such as exercise, which can have many effects on many different things, it would be nonsensical to suggest that it's going to be a, a, a golden bullet or a silver bullet or a magic bullet or, you know, whatever other kind of bullet that you want to call it. Um, but on the general whole, would I prefer to get someone moving, get someone, you know, feeling confident in their body over other things? Absolutely. And if you actually look at what we talk about good health being, so moving, engaging in social activities, um, you know, being confident, thinking positively, all these other things, general health, not smoking, not boozing too much, etc. We would probably say that treating long-term chronic pain probably fits into kind of a similar, a similar bracket, you know, yeah. and, 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 and 
The worst thing that we can do, though, is suggest to people that going out and doing some moving is going to solve all their problems. Is it likely to be beneficial? I would like to think so. Is it going to solve all of their problems? Probably not. And if we tell them it is, does that just create another problem? Yeah. So, you, you know, so for me, is movement the best of the bunch? Yes. But maybe it's the best of a bad bunch sometimes, unfortunately, because we're yeah. still not that great at treating pain. Yeah, I think that's probably a, a really good kind of take home for anyone listening, actually, is yeah, if you see anything that's giving you absolutes almost, it's probably worth steering clear of to a degree, I think given that it's almost a, you know, it's a very much a best guess. This is probably going to be beneficial for you. We think rather than this will solve your problem in 10 sessions. Yeah. I mean, there's, but there's a big difference between something being beneficial in a general broad sense, isn't there? And then something solving a specific problem. And that's yeah. what, you know, if someone was to say to me is movement and exercise generally a good thing for human beings. I would say, fuck yeah. Right. But, would I tell you that it's going to fix your very, very specific issue? You know, whether that's your ankle pain, your hip pain, etc. I probably wouldn't be that confident, but it would be probably my first probability as a go-to. Yeah, that's a, a good way of putting it, I think. Um, going on from that, I know, um, just coming back to the back pain thing, again, the whole kind of I spoke to a couple of people before who, you know, when they come in there, oh, I want to get a scan for my, for my back. I think I've done this or that. And it seems to be, again, from what I've read, a, lot, a good proportion of people tend to have some sort of, let's call it an abnormality. Maybe it's a normality because it's quite popular, but a popular common is you know, <laughs> like a, a bulge. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> a bulge or some sort of you know, non-perfect spinal yeah. alignment or issue. What, what's your kind of situation? What would you say to that? Where like you know, people go and get a scan, they see a bulge, and it's like, oh, that's the cause of all my problems. When actually, you know, I guess the majority of the population probably have a bulge somewhere. Yeah, we we've got quite a few things to unpick there. Firstly, people want to know why they have a problem, because if you if I know why I've got a problem, I can fix. Right, that's the mentality yeah. we have in modern medicine. Find the problem, take the drug, cut it out, whatever. This is what we would call the biomedical model. Now, the reason why we have the biopsychosocial model, you know, is that we know that the biomedical model isn't sufficient to, for a lot of people's problems. Um, what we know about scans, firstly, is the biggest, there are two big determinants of degeneration. One is age and the other is genetics, yeah. right? So what they've done lots of is what are called twin studies. So you take two twins and you scan them and the twins that they often take have different physical profiles. So what they're trying to find out are what are the determinants of degeneration in the spine. So as I said before, age is the big determinant, right? You degenerate. You only have to look at old people to know that your skin degenerates, your hair degenerates, your muscle mass degenerates, your spine degenerates, right? Yeah. It's called, uh, you know, some people might say the biggest thing, that the best thing that life ever created was death. You know, because things need to die so other things can grow. That's, that's the way that it works out. It's not good for us as we get old, but it's good for yeah. the people who are coming through. Right? So age is a big degenerate. That's why we have studies that show that the biggest correlator with degeneration is simply age. Right? But then we also know genetics play quite a big part as well. So genetic, as I say, they take, they've taken uh, twins with different occupations, say a journalist and a farmer is a great example from the Batty paper. Uh, they've done another study where they looked at triathletes 
um, and then they scanned them and, and found, you know, various uh, similarities and differences, etc. And what they generally find is that actually loading and moving and using your body doesn't seem to be a huge determinant of what happens to your spine. Biggest determinants tend to be genetics and tend to be uh, age as well. But those things often are done in an asymptomatic population. Yeah. So we know that, you know, this is the kind of Brzezinski work. We know that, um, you know, as you get older, your spine degenerates, but we know that's also done in an asymptomatic population, that study. So therefore it tells us the correlation with pain isn't great. But there is also some other papers that have shown some aspect of correlation between so there was a paper that you know there was another paper alongside the very famous Brzezinski paper that everyone talks about where they actually looked they found that symptomatic patients had slightly more degeneration so yeah. but what we have to remember is the type of study so it's an observational study right so an observational study does not imply causation that's the point of it it's a it's a, it's a point in time it's not yeah. you know it's not even longitudinal a lot of these so what we have to ask ourselves is, you know, does back pain lead people to stop doing things so therefore they adapt? So actually yeah. spinal degeneration could be because of back pain, not causing back pain. You know, you have to apply the logic in both ways, whereas yeah. people aren't very good at that, you know. Um, so certainly at this moment in time, we know that there are a lot of what we would describe as age-related change within the spine right? Yeah. We know that there's genetic factors that are going on. Um, how much they correlate with pain, we really don't know. Again, on an individual level, could it be correlated with pain? Maybe. From a population level, it seems to be, we would probably say there are lots of changes that occur without any pain occurring. Um, but again, we have two issues. We have prevalence and we have relevance. So we know that there's a high prevalence. The problem we have at the moment is deciding whether that's relevant to this person's problem. And again, clinically, that's really unclear. Yeah, so I guess that you know, in some acute situations where there's quite clearly an injury, like you've, you've got an annular tear or something like that, it's almost, I guess you can pretty well, much... No, well, again, you know, I, I think acute pain is not, isn't a great example. Acute just means right now. Yeah. So I would say maybe when you're talking about a mechanism of injury, that might be something different. So a mechanism of injury isn't an acute problem. An acute problem is only a temporal time stamp. Um, but we also know that you can have big bulging discs and no pain. And we know that the amount of pain that you have doesn't correlate with the size of the disc bulge and things like that. Yeah. So it, it, look, it's, a, it's a mind field out here. Do you see what I mean? It's like yeah. we, we are not, you know. So they think, let's take something like sciatica due to disc herniation. So they think about 60% of um, sciatica has a disc herni herniated aspect to it. Um, you know, so I wonder what causes the other 40%. Yeah. But again, it's very, very difficult. How do we know that we can trust those statistics? Because we also have another bunch of information that tells us. So I suppose we have to have a clinical picture. We have to have a objective scan based picture. And even then that's subjective because you have to have somebody who reads it. Yeah. Um, and, and you then make a clinical decision. Again, it's, it's bloody hard, this job, mate. <laughs> yeah. It's just error stacked on error, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah, well, it's, it's we don't accept enough the, the variation and variability that basically exists here. 
And yeah. I think the better we get at accepting that and, and giving patients an understanding that there is a bit of variability here. And that's probably positive in their favour um, yeah. because it might not be as bad as they think. Then I, I think that that can be really beneficial. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a, a good a good way to look at it. Certainly, rather than, um, yeah, trying to say, oh, this is yeah, we're just going to guess here, and <laughs> you can you know hope. Um, How many of I these think... guesses are to the negative? I think that's the problem, isn't it? Guesses tend to err on the negative rather than the positive. Yeah, I suppose it's kind of people building in their natural kind of buffer for. Yeah, oh, well, I did say it wasn't going to be quite as good as I thought. You know, I, I think that's a really good point, James. Is that people are covering their backs? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I guess it was all underpinned by how you know, your level of understanding and what you can convey to the, the person in front of you, isn't it really? Is to, yeah, to no, absolutely. what you're saying. Um, I think just to kind of wrap up then, um, I know um, we've had a really good discussion there. I could probably could ask you a, a load more questions about kind of, let's call it traumatic injuries or, or that sort of thing, because they're really fascinating as well. Um, but from um, the side of, of this, um, that was really interesting. I, I definitely got a lot from that. Um, I know you run a course. I'd just like to quickly um, just check on what exactly that is. I know it's like a mentorship for, for practitioners because I think a couple of like coaches also listen to this podcast. So it'd be quite interesting to see um, what, what that entails quickly um, and also where people can find you if they want to find out a bit more information about what you do and, and get in touch or reach out. Whatever. Yeah. So, so look, the mentorship program really was my attempt at, or is my attempt at trying to do something more than a weekend course. Because people go on a weekend course, they get a little bit of information and they come away. The whole idea of the mentorship was to get people to go into a deeper dive so that they actually really understand some of these subjects. They actually take some time to delve into the literature, into the research, learn a bit more about what research is, research methods, etc. But in a way that isn't like, you know, enrolling at a university where, you know, that, that takes a lot of time and, yeah. uh, and what have you. So it's my probably flawed attempt at trying to fill a, a real gap that I see um, in the education market in terms of, you know, I think we still need to get to deeper, deeper learning. And, you know, from, from my perspective, it's biased around the subjects that I enjoy talking about. Yeah. So yeah. research and research methods, you know, pain, uh, you know, education, uh, movement, exercise, different ways of applying that to different areas of the body. So the point is, again, how, you know, sometimes the academic world doesn't have great practical application. Yeah. So it's trying to marry the two over a longer course format. Um, and I don't think that many people are doing it out there because it's really quite difficult, you know, yeah. right? Especially, yeah, especially to do it from more of an evidence-based perspective and again again i mean there's a lot of my opinion thrown in there you can't get away from that but you know i would like to hope that the people that are coming out of the program aren't saying this is the answer this is the way you know that they're, they're being able to understand things from maybe a little bit more of a wider perspective what does the data say what do the opinions say what can i see you know what kind of mental models have i got because one of the big things i see a lack of is a lack of philosophy now, not philosophy like Plato and these kind of yeah. things and woe is me and what have you, but <laughs> just a real philosophy to their rehabilitation or their training or their therapy. You know, what, how do they think? I think that what we don't ask ourselves enough is how do we think? Why do we think that way? How can we improve that? And I think if we get better at that, then we're much better at assimilating this information, dealing with individual patients rather than more protocol or kind of you know 
you do A and that will equal B and the outcome will be C because yeah. frankly, we know that that doesn't work. Sure. Yeah, so that sounds really interesting actually. Um, and I think it sounds like a good approach to be fair because like you said, it's teaching people to kind of think for themselves a little bit as well rather than just kind of... Well, for me, that's the, that, that's the whole point. And at the end, you know, hopefully people are, you know, not too much mind are questioning me <laughs> to some degree, you know? Yeah. But are, you know, are... are because for every answer, there is another answer, isn't there? So I think at the point, you know, if we, that if I ever sit down with a patient or, you know, or do anything, is there always more than one decision to make, one answer to go, you know, why have I chosen to go down this path rather than yeah. this path? You know, there are always multiple solutions. And so if we get to the point and we appreciate that, we understand why we're going down one road versus another road, I, I think we are going to be better at what we do to be honest with you yeah. i think that's the long and the short of it yeah i think that i think that's fair i think it's always good to at least be able to kind of back up your reasoning in that sense of be like well i'm gonna do this even though these are other options because this seems the best for you because xyz um, yeah look you have to you just have to um you just have to appreciate there are lots of opinions lots of methods lots of ways to doing it and the only way that we can navigate that really is by having our own philosophy and if we have our own philosophy, our own belief structure, our own way of analysing and understanding evidence and, you know, our own critical thinking skills, we are going to be better at what we do. Now, is that a lifelong process? Does it happen in the six months people spend with me? Absolutely not. Can I hopefully light a part of the bonfire, be a bit of a catalyst for yeah. some people to maybe approach the problem in a slightly different way? Yeah, awesome. Um, I think that's a really good approach, actually, um, and something that I'm actually going to probably look into myself at some point, to be fair. Um, <laughs> so where can um, people find you, um, social media, et cetera, if they, if they want to kind of know a bit more, learn yeah. more? Look, I'm not hard to find because I'm a bit of a loud mouth, to be honest with you. <laughs> I make up for any kind of real academic rigour by just talking a lot on social media. Um, you can find me on Twitter, arguing with people, probably on Facebook. Less so. I've got very bored with Facebook, if I'm being honest. I find it, you know, I, I, it just doesn't do it for me anymore. And then Instagram. But yeah, thank you very much for that. That was uh, excellent. I really enjoyed that. Um, so thanks for sharing your knowledge. I might ask you to come back on at some point to, to talk about some more specific bits, if that's all right. All right. Cheers, mate. Um, I hope that you found this episode interesting and you're looking forward to another one next week as usual um, but quickly before I sign off I'll just let you know where you can find out more about Ben you can find him on Facebook if you search for core-kinetic or on Instagram where it's at core-kinetic or one word that's c-o-r-k-i-n-e-t-i-c or one word I'll leave the links in the episode below before you check in on if you'd like to find out more anyway and as usual if you have any topic suggestions or guests you to hear from please do get in touch or let me know by emailing info at simplesessions.co.uk. Have a fantastic week and see you for one more next time. Yeah.